Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 2 and also at verse 13. That's on page 61 if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles. And if you're just joining us this morning, we're well into a series on the book of Exodus. And we've started in the first chapter of Exodus and we're going through Exodus 20. Week in and week out, we've been uh, looking at Exodus to see what it has to tell us about God's desire for his people to be set free. Exodus is a book of God setting his people free. And that's true in the narrative of Exodus as he leads his people out of Egypt. We've been seeing the last number of weeks that's also true of God giving his law to his people. That even the law... The gift of the law to his people is an act by which God is setting his people free. Setting his people free to be in relationship now with this God who has called them out of slavery. Uh, You you notice the title of the sermon. Elizabeth, my wife, sat down and said, oh, it's an intriguing title. Uh, This is Love is a Verb. Love Life. Uh, Next week is Love is a Noun, Love Life. But you can come back for that next week. Uh, before we read, let's, uh, let, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this morning. What a gift it is to be here right now. And we confess maybe that's a gift that we don't appreciate right now. Um, we may well be distracted. Many of us coming off very hard weeks. Many of us coming off weeks where we have been left um, numb and even questioning whether or not you are there and whether or not you care. Some of us here this morning, not even sure why we're here, not even sure that we have the faith to open up this Bible and expect to hear a word from you. Wherever we are this morning, would you meet us by the power of your word? Would you speak to us? Would you open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we might know you better? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. The sixth commandment. Uh, Earlier this week was with uh, a a group of friends over dinner. And uh, one of my friends asked me what I was preaching on this week. Uh, And I told him I was preaching on the sixth commandment. "Do, Do not murder. And uh, this is one my, my friend's familiar with. He's a, he's a federal prosecutor, and so he, he deals with a lot of murder, deals with a lot of hard things. And, and so he heard that, and he asked me why I was preaching on the Sixth Commandment. He said, are you, are you doing a series on the Ten Commandments? I said, well, I, I said, I am. And he said, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, because otherwise I was wondering, like, why, why, why murder? You know, he said, I, um, I just have trouble believing that that's a real presenting issue for a lot of folks in your congregation, something you really feel like you need to address. We shouldn't go around killing each other. Um, and, uh, you know, on the surface we read this and we think, you know, there's a lot, if you know the Ten Commandments, there's, there's many in there maybe that you, if you think about it, you're conscious of, of, of struggling with or knowing that you don't fully live up to. But for many of us, we read this and we're like, you know, I've at least got one checked off the list up to this point, have not murdered anyone. Well, I think we're going to see, in spite of my, my friend's comment and his question, you know, the implication of, is there anything here for us, for those of us who've, uh, who, who are not literally going out and murdering people? Well, I think we're going to see that it is relevant. 
I know you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that. We're preaching on it today. But it, it does affect us. It does have bearing on our lives. Because the truth is, we have all broken this commandment. You have broken this commandment. You might or might not believe that at this point. But I think that's what Scripture holds up for us. So we're going to try to dive into what the implications of this commandment are for us. If you've been listening, uh, if you've been here for the last number of weeks in this series, you know in the first four commandments, they uh, can be roughly grouped and, and, and described in this way. They have to do directly with our love for God, loving God above all else. Commandments 1 through 4, and then commandments 5 through 10 have to do with loving our neighbor. Now, of course, uh, in the Christian view of the world, those things are inextricably bound up together. Okay, you can't separate those. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. But that's an easy, uh, rough way of looking at the Ten Commandments. First four deal directly with loving God, and the final six deal directly and have bearing directly on loving our neighbor. What does it mean to love our neighbor? Last week we talked about honoring our parents and that aspect of what it means to love neighbor. And then in this commandment, uh, we see that loving our neighbor means loving the life of our neighbor. We're going to be people who love our neighbor. We must love their life. That's what this commandment tells us. And so we're going to see here about uh, what it says about loving the life of our neighbor. We'll look at three things. First, we're going to talk about the fruit. We're, 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 going, to use a, we're going to use a horticultural image today. Okay, imagine a tree in your garden. Uh, a week or so ago, some friends of ours who live on a farm brought us a, a bag full of apples. Okay, uh, so uh, imagine you're on the farm and you see these fruit trees. What do you notice? Well, we're gonna we're gonna see this morning the fruit of the sixth commandment, the kind of fruit it bears in our lives, and we're gonna talk about the root of the sixth commandment. Where does this fruit come from? And we're gonna talk about the soil of the sixth commandment. Okay, so. Fruit and the root and the soil. So first, uh, the fruit of the sixth commandment. Again, like these apples that our friend brought to us. When you, when you walk uh, into a, into an orchard of apple trees, what's the first thing that you notice if it's in season? You notice the fruit. You notice the apples that are hanging there for you to see. And so this morning as we talk about the fruit of the sixth commandment, this is the fruit that's hanging on the branches of our lives. The stuff that's out there for everyone to see. Our actions, our words... Okay, the ways uh, our life bears fruit that other people around us see. We see each other's, we see each other's fruit. There are two kinds of fruit for any tree, right? There's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Let's talk about the bad fruit of the sixth commandment. How does it bear this this bad and terrible fruit in our lives? Well, look at what the commandment actually says: uh, "You shall not murder." Again, fairly straightforward commandment. You're, you're not. To murder. Uh, the translation of the Hebrew word here, uh, murder is a good translation for that. If you happen to be using the King James Version, it says, do not kill. If you've got the ESV, which you have in your pew, or the NIV, New American Standard, other modern translations, you'll see they almost all use the word murder, and that's a better translation of the word. Okay? This is not a generic word for killing as the King James Version might lead you to believe. It is a specific word for killing. It has to do with a certain kind of killing. It's what we would call murder. And it also includes what we would call in our own concept of uh, justice, what we would call manslaughter. Okay, Acts of killing that maybe were unintentional, maybe that came through your own negligence or carelessness. Let's say that you um, get into your car and you're driving in an unsafe manner. 
you run into another car and it's your fault and the person in the other car is killed. We don't call that murder. It's not premeditated or even unpremeditated act of passion. It is an, an accidental killing, but someone is someone is died nevertheless. Okay, that's what this word murder has to do with. Okay, so what that means is it does not include and it's not talking about the kind of killing that happens in the context of war. And it's not talking about the kind of killing that happens in the context of capital punishment. It's not talking about the kind of killing that happens in the context of self-defense. And we're not going to talk about all those things. But what I want you to see here is those other topics are addressed in Scripture, but this word is not prohibiting that. It is prohibiting specifically the act of murder, unintentional killing of someone else. Now, seen from this angle, it has to do with a lot of the cultural questions and issues that we deal with. Okay? Again, we're not going to go into any depth on these, but I just want to mention them. If you were to open up a book of Christian ethics that used the Ten Commandments as a grid by which to understand our relationship with the world around us and, and how to act in an ethical manner, in a Christian book on ethics, you would find discussions under the Sixth Commandment about the implications of this for abortion. That abortion is actually falls under this category of murder. It is a wrongful killing. And you'd see discussions about euthanasia and suicide, also wrongful acts of, of killing, of taking of life. So, you know, this is, this is going to sound somewhat circular maybe, but, but murder is any sort of unlawful taking of life. Again, the Bible has categories for some lawful takings of life. Okay, now, is that all there is to it, though? I mean, again, for perhaps for most of us hearing that list, we can we can check those off and think, you know, I've never taken someone's life in, in any sense like that. Does it bear on anything else? Well, it also bears on anything that we do that brings harm to our neighbor. Okay, that could be very physical and literal acts of violence, or it could be any other sort of oppression or injustice. And that's why the way Christians have always read this commandment, that it is not simply the physical striking of another person, but anything you do that works towards their harm, that robs them of life in its fullness, anything that brings oppression and harm into somebody else's life. And that's why we you read stories maybe of um, William Wilberforce, for example, if you happen to have seen the movie Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce, the British abolitionist, and his and others' very concentrated work, late 18th, early 19th century, to bring ab- the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Why did they care so much? Because slavery is a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. It is not necessarily a literal killing of someone, though it may certainly end that way in a slave's life, but it is a depriving them of the good that they deserve as human beings. It is a bringing of oppression and pain into their life. It's why abolition is still an issue for us today. I read this morning the uh, estimated uh, figure right now is that there are 27 million people in our world who are enslaved somewhere in this world. Could be under indentured servitude, could be in the worldwide sex trade, and that happens even in our American cities. There are people being oppressed, and it matters to God because it is a breaking of the sixth commandment. So it has to do with anything that brings harm into our neighbor's life. Now, there are dramatic examples like global slavery, there are also much more mundane and pervasive ones. Uh, at the recommendation of one of you, 
I picked up the library, a book on the Ten Commandments, written by uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Maybe you're familiar with Dr. Laura on the radio. Uh, she's, an, uh, she's a psychologist and counselor, and she's got this online, or she's got this radio show. Um, I, I've, I've never actually listened to a radio show. Camper used to be a huge fan of hers. Uh, she sort of tells it to you straight. Um, but I've been fascinated by the book. I read the chapter on the Sixth Commandment this week. And she wrote this uh, in partnership with the Jewish rabbi talking about how, you know, how has this commandment always been seen within the pages of Scripture. And one of the things that she singles out for specific attention in her chapter on do not murder is gossip. Gossip. And on the surface you think gossip or global slavery. Think about something more pervasive to our own lives. What brings damage and harm to our relationships? Gossip is certainly up near the head of the list. What does she say? She says, this brings destruction into the lives of the people around you. And it brings destruction into your own life as it can be so uh, tantalizing and pleasurable even to have that bit of information and then to be the one who shares it with another person. To see that look of shock and horror and if you're in the South... Um, you know, to, to hear somebody say, um, you know, so-and-so, bless his heart. And then to say the condemning statement, that little bit of gossip, that it brings real harm and damage, that our reputations can be murdered, that we can assault people with our words. This commandment has to do with all kinds of bad fruit that comes into our life. Now, back to our tree, the apples hanging on the tree, the bad fruit of breaking this commandment, of bringing murder and harm into people's lives. Well, each of these commandments speaks not only to what we are not to do. It's very clear here, do not murder. But all of these commandments also, each and every one of them, imply the opposite. So not simply are you not to murder, you are to do everything you can to promote the good and the health and the flourishing of the people around you. Okay, imagine this. You're sick and you go to a doctor's office. There's something serious going on. You need to find out what it is. You walk in and talk to your doctor. Well, as you, you may know, doctors uh, for centuries now, really since the 4th century B.C., have taken some version of the Hippocratic Oath. Okay? Uh, doctors, as they're being trained in medical school, and it's this oath about how they will practice medicine. And one of the very first parts of the Hippocratic Oath is this promise that you will do no harm. Okay, now you go and you're sick. You go into your doctor's office. Then... To some degree, you're certainly going to be comforted that this person has promised not to do anything consciously to harm you. Okay, we want doctors to be pledged to that, right? You want your doctor not to be seeking to harm you. But think about it this way. Is that all you want from your doctor? You pay your copay and you go in and that's all you've got for me? You're not going to kill me? <laughs> you know, I came because I need something. Not simply do I need a do not harm me. I need you to bring health and healing and wholeness into my life. And it's the same way as we look at the Sixth Commandment or any of these. It's not enough to simply say, do not murder. Don't, don't simply refrain from that. We are called to bring health and healing and wholeness to each other's lives. That's what this commandment calls us to, to promote the life of others. Listen to the way Paul sums this up. This is in Romans 13. He goes through and he makes passing reference to the Ten Commandments. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment. They're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see what he does? He takes all those negative commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. And he says these are reflections of the positive commandment of love your neighbor. 
This is one aspect of loving your neighbor, of loving your neighbor's life. So not only are we not to damage the life of our neighbor, we are to positively guard and care for it. Let me, let me quote for you John Calvin and hear his comment on this. He said, God not only forbids us to be murderers, the presence of bad fruit, but he also prescribes that every one of us should study faithfully to defend the life of his neighbor and practically declare that it is dear to him. For in that summary, no mere negative phrase is used, but the words that expressly set forth are those that our neighbors are to be loved. God commends our neighbors and their lives to our care. There are therefore two parts in the commandment. First, that we should not vex or oppress or be at enmity with anyone. And secondly, that we should not only live at peace with men without exciting quarrels, but we should also aid as far as we can the miserable who are unjustly oppressed, and we should endeavor to resist the wicked lest they should injure others. What's he saying? We're to refrain from harming and we're to act positively for the good of those around us. And this is what Jesus puts his finger on in a parable in Matthew 25. If you remember this, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus speaks about there is a day when he is coming back in judgment. And some people will uh, enter into judgment and they will be condemned. And others will enter into judgment and be embraced and forgiven and accepted. And both groups in Matthew 25, it hinges on this commandment. They're loving the life of their neighbor. Listen to what he says to those that are cast out of his presence. Very sobering. He says, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What's he saying? Not that they were actively oppressing and killing the people around them, but they were refraining from doing the acts of mercy that God put before them. They were not stepping into the life and health of their neighbor and their community. They were not working for the good of those who were oppressed and needy. I think what this commandment does for us, speaking of the fruit, the good and the bad fruit, what does it do for us? It challenges Christians who are following Jesus to be deeply and consistently pro-life. Or in the words we're using this morning, to truly love Life, And that's not simply a one-issue calling, but it pervades all of life. Are we a people who love life, who promote life whenever and wherever we can? That is what this commandment calls us to. Okay, that's the fruit of the commandment. Second thing is the root of this commandment. If you're thinking about a tree and the fruit that it bears, where does that fruit come from? Well, in one sense, it comes from the health of the roots, that thing that's, that's drawing water into the tree. If, if a tree's roots are not healthy, it's not going to have healthy fruit. And what the Bible consistently points us back to is the primacy and the centrality of the heart. The primacy and centrality of the heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. 
For out of the heart come evil thought, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. See, fruit's what everyone can see hanging on the branches of your life, your actions, your words. But they come from somewhere. They come from the roots. In the words of the Bible, they come from your heart. Have you ever done something uh, maybe wrong or foolish and, and asked yourself when it was all over, why did I do that? And maybe that's because of the consequences that have come into your life or you simply just sort of come to your senses and you think, what possessed me to do that? Why did I do that? Well, the Bible has an answer. Your heart. It came from your heart. It was not simply some random occurrence in your life that gripped you for a moment. All of our actions and our words, everything flows from our hearts. So the heart is it bears on this commandment, the sixth commandment. Back to Jesus in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to several of the Ten Commandments, which are listed here in Exodus. And consistently he says, you know, you've talked and thought about this commandment in terms of its outward effects and its an outward obedience to it. But it really goes down to your heart. Here's what he says in, in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Quoting Exodus here. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's he saying? Keeping this commandment goes much deeper than simply refraining from killing someone. What does he say? When you hate someone, when you are harboring this anger that wants their uh, destruction rather than their good, you are, you are breaking the sixth commandment. Jesus' disciple, John, understood the lesson. Here's what he said, what he wrote in 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What happens when we see the bad fruit of the sixth commandment in our own lives? It drives us right back to our hearts. What is going on in our hearts? That our lives are being twisted and giving in to this kind of harm to other people. The roots of our lives, the hearts of our lives, have something deeply wrong with them. And this commandment exposes that. Every time you get into a fight with your spouse, whether that's physical or verbal, or just a cold shoulder, Anger that is burning in you. Breaking of the Sixth Commandment. There's a way to fight well. But we all know how to fight badly. What about this? Every time you read a story in the newspaper or see it uh, on the screen, on the TV news, uh, and you think, I can't believe someone would do that. I'm glad I'm better than that. You see somebody walking down the street. You see this person's clothes, their hair, their skin color. And you just look dismissively at them. Or there's, there's what's wrong with our society. There's another problem. There's another problem child walking down the street. Students, every time you gossip about a kid in school, every time you snub your nose at them, Every time you convince your friends to do the same, what are we doing? We are breaking the sixth commandment. 
We are murdering people in our hearts. And it flows from our hearts. The root of the sixth commandment. Now it leaves us with the question, what are we going to do? How in the world are we going to keep this commandment? What are we going to do as people who are commandment breakers? What needs to happen in our lives? What needs to change in order to make this possible for us? We're going to talk about the soil. Talk about the roots and the, the fruit and the roots in the soil. What kind of soil do we need to be rooted in in order to be people who actually keep the sixth commandment? Well, I think we see here that there, there are two things. We, they're involved in being rooted in a soil. It's going to make us six commandment keepers. There's something that we need to know and there's something that we need to experience. First, what do we need to know? Why is murder wrong? We inherently feel like murder is really a big deal. And when we start talking about murder to this kind of depth, it affects all our wrong thinking and wrong acting. It, it, it affects all our lack of care for our neighbor around us. We know that matters. Why? Why does it matter? Why do we recoil against murder? And people in different cultures and different religions and different viewpoints of the world have answered this question differently. Let me tell you what the scripture tells us about it. Let me give you an example first. I've got a friend who's a doctor. And as he was being interviewed for residency programs, uh, he, went, he went to this uh, one program, sat down and spoke to, I think it was the director of the program. This person was not a Christian and knew that my friend uh, was a Christian. And so he asked him the question, he said, how do you think your religion is going to affect your practice of medicine? And my friend knew just for this residency director, all the red flags were up for this guy, uh, waiting to hear what he would say and answer that question. How's, how's your Christianity, how's your religion going to affect your practice of medicine? Here's what my friend said. He said, I believe that we are all created in the image of God. And that because of that, we inherently have dignity and value and we must care for each other and I want to serve and care for other people through medicine to honor the image of God in them. And the residency director was shocked. He said, that's remarkable. I've never heard an answer like that. Now, why are we to be a people who care about murder? What kind of soil do we need to be rooted in? What do we need to know? The first thing is this, that murder is wrong because we as people are created in the image of God. And that's where Scripture takes us at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. As he makes man and woman, what does he say? God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is where this ethic, this is where the sixth commandment is rooted, that we are people who are created in the image of God. And so when we do anything to mar that image in someone else, we are marring the image of God. And Scripture is consistent that though we are now fallen people, though sin has now entered our world, though God's image in us is cracked and broken, it has not been obliterated, it is still there, and we still retain the image of God. And because of that and that alone, we are to value the lives of others around us. Not because of what they can give us, not because of what they add to society, not because of the way we evaluate their quality of life, but because they are image, image bearers of our God. In other words, God loves life 
because he has stamped his image on us. And so we are to be people who love life as well. In this sense, you know, if you were here last week, you heard Camper speaking about honoring our parents. He used the military example of, uh, you know, when people in the military are told when it's difficult for them that you salute the, uh, you salute the uniform, you salute the rank, not the person. As Camper talked about with our parents, God tells us to honor our parents. He says you, in that sense, are saluting, even with difficult parents, the position they've been given in your life by God. They're your parents. And in one sense here, we salute others. We guard their life. We honor them because they bear the image of God. Because we see in them God's image stamped indelibly. Okay, there's something we need to know that we're created in God's image. Second thing, being rooted in the soil, if we're going to be six commandment keepers, is there's something that we need to experience. And it's where we go back every week. Into the redemption, to the healing, to the forgiveness and freedom that Christ brings us into. And it's right here at the start of the Ten Commandments. Look back at verse 2. Before we get any of the specific commandments, what do we hear and what do we read week in and week out? God says to them, before he commands them anything, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's he saying? I am the God who has set you free. I have made you my people. And now let me tell you how to live. How are we going to be six commandment keepers? We're going to have to know and experience the redemption that comes to us in Jesus. Because we are six commandment breakers. And we are people deeply in need of being forgiven of our six commandment breaking. And Jesus knows a lot about the breaking of the six commandment. Not by doing it himself, but by experiencing the effects of it himself. Jesus knew the gossip and the scorn of the religious leaders of his day who sought uh, to uh, rob him of his influence and power. Jesus underwent an unjust arrest and a lawless trial. Jesus endured mocking and beating at the hands of this unjust court. And he received at their hands an ignominious and painful murder. What does Jesus know about the Sixth Commandment? Everything. The one who was murdered. But astoundingly, in that very act of receiving the hardest edge of Sixth Commandment breaking, what does he do? He says, murder will not have the final say. And death will not have the final say. And surprisingly and amazingly, Jesus, in the very act of being killed in violation of this commandment, uses that very same death death to bring freedom and forgiveness to us. People who kill, people who murder, with our actions, with our thoughts, and with our words. In the person of Jesus, murder giving away to life, bringing forgiveness for us. And as we see the goodness of Jesus... And as we know that he comes and brings forgiveness to murderers like us, only there are you going to find the strength and the perspective and the ability to then go and forgive those who are breaking the sixth commandment against you. And only there are you going to find the strength and the encouragement and the power to go and not simply refrain from bringing harm to your neighbor, but step into those very difficult situations of your life and bring healing and health and the good of your neighbor, even at your own 
even at the cost of your own care, the cost of your own wealth, the cost of your own prestige, the cost of your own comfort. It's the only thing that's going to bring long-suffering and love in the face of the hatred and suffering that we experience and that we have brought into the lives of others. It is only in Jesus that we find the freedom to actually keep this commandment because he has brought us healing and health and kept it on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. And um, and maybe for really thinking are, are somewhat overwhelmed by the scope of this commandment. All those careless words and careless thoughts, all that pettiness, all that harm that we've brought to others, all those ways in which we have not done what was lay before us, what was in our power to do to help someone in need of help, all those ways we have worked against the goodness and flourishing in life of those around us. Would you forgive us? We thank you that we can have confidence and come and ask this. Because you, Jesus, took on murder that we murderers might be set free. Give us an awe of that great release, even today, that we might be people who are grateful. We might be a people who are now free to really love life, not only our own, but the lives of those around us. Would you change us and transform us? And would you be honored in us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.